0: Hello and welcome back to Chit Heads. My name is Khalid and I am one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy. We have a subversive episode today with Bahani Sakar, who is a Calcutta-born, Oxford-educated scholar of classical Sanskrit literature and pre-modern Indian history and religious traditions. Bahani is a historian of early Indian politics, religions, and literature between the 2nd and 15th centuries CE. She is a lecturer in Comparative Non-Western Thought at Lancaster University, and formerly a departmental lecturer in Sanskrit at Oriental Institute, University of Oxford. Bahani has researched and taught in universities in the UK and in Europe. Her teaching goal is to enable everyone access to early Indian Sanskrit texts and traditions in the original language, regardless of ability or prior knowledge, and to think about them in critical, modern, and exciting ways. She has authored the book, Classical Sanskrit Tragedy, The Concept of Suffering and Pathos in Medieval India. In this episode, Lahani and Jacob discuss the study of Sanskrit unmotivated by any kind of political ideology, marginalized voices in the study of Sanskrit, and Shakta as a homegrown feminist tradition inspiring and emancipating Indian woman. We hope you enjoy.
1: Tell me about... About Lancaster, how has it been? How, how has it been different from your experience at Oxford? I'm sure it's a, a different vibe. Tell me a little bit about how things are going.
2: Um, yeah. So, um, well, thank you, Jacob, for kind of asking me uh, to the to the podcast, and it's so nice to to see you again after. Gosh, it's been more than a year now.
1: It's been a year. Yeah. For those that are listening, um, this is a special interview because it's with Bahani Sarkar, who was actually my teacher at Oxford, one of the, the lecturers um, there while I was studying to do my MPhil on the first year in classical Indian religion, which was also a program you did many years ago.
2: Indeed I did, yes. Not
1: really so many in the grand scheme of things, because we're actually the same age I discovered uh, when we were in, (laughs) when you were studying, which is always an interesting experience when you go to university again, and then Mm -hmm. suddenly your teachers are your age, they're your peers in some sense, maybe not academically, but certainly in sort of stage of life. Um, So yeah, so I I was mentioning to Bahani before we started that this is the first personal, you know, academic teacher I've had who I've interviewed on Chit Heads. So it's a special experience for me. And Bahani was an amazing kind of shepherdess of the program. You really were the heart of the MPhil program that year. And many of us talked about how, how, um, how necessary you were to really give us some direction and make us feel supported and otherwise in a program that can feel a little bit cold perhaps, and not super warm and and nurturing and you really brought a nurturing quality to it so i am i still have very fond memories of you and i'm really excited to chat
2: thank you so much jacob that's so nice (laughs) (laughs) um thanks i mean you know jacob you were certainly uh i'm not exaggerating here you were certainly one of the nicest the the nicest students that i was teaching and um, it was just so nice to have you come around to the readings and the tutorials, because I think those sessions landed up being a bit like what I think the, this podcast would become like, just a rich conversation, a rich yeah. and deep conversation.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't always like that, was it? What do you think were the limits
2: <laughs> to, to getting yeah. to that place? yeah i mean of course um there were different types of classes that we had there there were classes that were focused specifically on reading texts in which there was very much this is um an incorrect sentence you've in- interpreted or you've translated this sentence incorrectly and this is the right sentence so there's very much something that's a bit strict and yes and no kind of a class like that and then there were other types of classes where we would just sit and talk and you'd bring over your essays and we talk through um, uh, the essays and I remember even during the readings you bringing up some really pertinent questions which I think took the readings to a totally different level and I also remember very very fondly the um, practice sessions that we had before the exams and I think those were special because we really bonded um, over vulnerabilities because you were coming to me from a position of needing help with something Mm -hmm. And that reminded me of how I was for much of my time as a student needing help with my Sanskrit. And when you come with that openness and vulnerability, um, you bond in a different way, because Mm. that just I think my little mommy vibe just goes off. (laughs) I can't I can't resist that. (laughs) You need my help. I will help you.
1: Well, I think that stands out for everybody as a unique quality that you have, and I'm sure you're continuing to bring that to Lancaster as well. So how has Lancaster been? How has it been different from what you've been experiencing as a teacher so far?
2: I mean, I don't even know where to start. Um, I joined Lancaster last year, um, but it feels like, gosh, I've lived a lifetime in this one year. In terms of teaching, it's very different. It's not Sanskrit text anymore. Um, It's more um, religious and philosophical and historical modules. So courses designed around uh, religious and historical topics. I'm teaching um, two modules currently that I designed, one which is called uh, uh, Religion and Politics of South Asia, The Power of the Past. And the other, which is called Wild Asian Goddesses, uh, transgression, and, um, uh, transgression and power in South and Southeast Asia. The first one, which is what I'm teaching right now, which is religion and politics, the power of the past. We look at how uh, religion and politics overlaps in South Asia, um, how it's kind of not very helpful to think of religion and politics sometimes as two differentiated domains. So topics like sacred kingship, um, uh, both in Islam and in Hinduism, uh, topics like ritual and power. Uh, um, I think maybe we did that topic. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. not quite sure if we did that topic, but um, ritual and power is um, is something which looks at how ritual is the domain in which sovereign power is created and the power of the rulers performed. So um those kinds of topics and we're also going to look at post-colonial identity and how heritage and what role heritage can play in defining post-colonial identity so that's very different from what i taught in yeah. sanskrit yeah. Um, and the wild asian goddesses really looks at um uh, goddesses from south and southeast asia and studies them in relation to A feminist theory, particularly feminist theory from black and Islamic feminisms. Um, In fact, there's a whole separate teaching element, uh, which will focus on comparative feminisms. And I'm really excited about that, because I'm thinking about feminism and heroines in Sanskrit literature a lot. These days, Um, I'm going to be writing about it as well. So that's where I am at now. Um, You've caught me at an exciting place.
1: (laughs) Yeah, much, much more exciting, I would say, than (laughs) sometimes what's happening at Oxford, which I feel like is a more limited theoretical framework. It sounds like you're really kind of expanding a bit more into, you know, drawing on greater other theoretical frameworks like feminism in order to situate your work in Sanskrit. So it's sort of less this this kind of... um, classical philological approach, you know, you know, whatever that is with all of its more or less limitations and, and broadening it to sort of a more multidisciplinary kind of mode.
2: Yes, but certainly the, the reading the primary sources always anchors that for me, because I think being able to confront the historical sources without, without the filter of translation is something that is empowering because yeah. I don't have other voices interpreting those sources to me. Um, I am the first witness in a way of it without any intermediary. So I always bring that forward in my classes that you know it's direct access to yeah. uh, to the language and a lot of this I'm thinking now in relation to um, a very, powerful post-colonial thinker called Ngugiwa Thiongo, who's a Black philosopher, and um, he argues in his um, uh, decolonizing the mind that really um, reclaiming post-colonial identity, and this is in relation to, to African identity, is to go back to African languages which have been systematically expunged and decimated by the brutality of colonialism. So going back to your primary voice, your mother tongue, is actually uh, clawing back that identity which you've lost. So in a way, for me, my journey into Sanskrit was coming back or understanding the the source of my language and my mother tongue
0: uh, mm. more,
2: um, and of course I'm sure there are problems with this which you're going to raise as well. But because you know, as you said, I think you mentioned in, in your email that there is this reactive trend in uh, in academic amongst academic thinkers that say that well, you're you're going native, <laughs> quote unquote, but by going um, uh, native, you're also somehow endorsing a very right-wing fundamentalist, non-liberal um, idea and ideology. Now, I, I mean, again, the way I think about it is going back to heritage. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of chattering on without. <laughs>
1: No, it's very, no, it's very interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, why don't I, um, I'll situate your question a little bit and kind of give some, uh, a little further backdrop just to add to what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, the, this, the, the, the point I was sort of interested in talking to you about, um, and you've said a lot of interesting things that I feel like I have some questions about. So, um, We'll, but one of, the, one of the things, we'll just go straight into it, even though I usually save the politics towards the end, but why not discuss it at jumping. the beginning? It'll keep people listening. Um, is that what, you know, there is, on the one hand, what's interesting about what you're saying is that there is this sense in which to study Sanskrit and to go to the, the source text of Sanskrit is in a way coming home, like you're saying, for yourself as a as a south asian person and in that sense there's a decolonialist element to that right to go to your mother tongue as you say and then there is this kind of other um argument which is pointing out that actually the emphasis on sanskrit is in a way uh perpetuating brahminical orthodoxy and supremacy in the region and what we you know what these these more polemical thinkers say we should be doing is we should be in some sense um, focusing more on elevating or platforming Dravidian languages, other Indian languages that are not Dravidian or Sanskritic um, because by focusing on Sanskrit as sort of the primary original language of India, we, in a sense, marginalize some of these, you know, other cultures, other people who lived in the region. So I guess, you know, with that, with those two kind of um, perspectives in mind, how would you, you know, situate your own uh, perspective in relation to that? And also, do, do you think, I'm curious, do you think that that the point about the other languages of India is a bit overstated um, when we look at, because it seems like, to me, there are tons of, of uh, there's so much work to do in Sanskrit alone, Right there's so much literature, and yes, there's literature in these other languages. But when we do proportionally, when we look at the literature and the philosophy that has yet to be translated, it's there is no comparison in terms of what is left unworked on, untranslated, undiscovered. Is it? Would you would you say that that's true?
2: Yeah. So I'll take the two aspects of the questions. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> one was, um, I guess, one was about the um, whether whether, te- whether learning Sanskrit or whether studying Sanskrit furthers Brahminical discourses and Brahminical orthodox thinkings. Um, so that was the first one. And the second one was about regional languages and marginalization of regional languages um, uh, in, in favor of Sanskrit. So I'll take the first one. So yes. Um. So there is a bigger political context that's very important to draw out, which is that in the past... A few years um, and particularly now India has been governed by a right-wing uh, Hindu nationalist party and they endorse a particular kind of ideology, a political ideology um, that claims to interpret true Hinduism uh, and I and I used and I put true within quotation marks, which is basically their interpretation of uh, what Hinduism should be like. Mm-hmm. And within this um, uh, agenda, they also appropriate Sanskrit. So yeah. sa- because Sanskrit is the language of all the ancient scriptures, they see any kind of study of Sanskrit or they take up the study of Sanskrit as part of the Hindutva agenda. So that's what's going on right now. And regardless to say, I'm me like another, like a lot of uh, contemporary Indians are very frightened by that because the India that I grew up was diverse. There are many, many different uh, voices. There are many different religious traditions uh, India is kaleidoscopic culturally and religiously and that's how I, I've always known India. So the, the perpetuation of a monolithic um, identity that claims to be authentic to me is, um, is, is false, it's patently false. So you can understand that in the context of Sanskrit being appropriated by right wing um, agendas, you can understand um, the reactive trend in academia that somehow views um, study of Sanskrit with suspicion, because yeah. they see in any kind of study of Sanskrit that fundamentalist Brahminical agenda at work. Now that's why I found it so easy to, to study. I mean, I found it easier to study Sanskrit far away in rural Lancaster where, um, you know, I study Sanskrit as a scholar does um, purely for the love of the language and actually purely out of curiosity. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not studying Sanskrit out of any political agenda. The only agenda that I think it serves is um, a romantic one for myself uh, which you know <laughs> which is to to understand a different world and to inhabit a different world um, so mm. so that's the context in which the um, reactive trend is coming up now studying Sanskrit or studying some Sanskrit literature may be a furthering of Brahminical discourse because say you're studying things like or reading or elaborating on things like the Dharma Shastra which uh, given that they're Hindu legal um, uh, legal works do further a Brahminical agenda. So say if you study really hardline things like that Maybe, maybe you are furthering um, an orthodox agenda, but say, like me, you study literature from marginal traditions, like goddess traditions, traditions which incorporate a lot of subversive acts that defy Brahminical orthodox thinking concerning purity, then how can you say I'm furthering uh, Brahminical uh, um, orthodoxy? Yeah. Um, goddess traditions actually defy Brahminical orthodoxy. Yeah. So that's my answer to to your the first part of the question is that Sanskrit can Sanskrit texts and Sanskrit can cover a whole lot of things. Not just brahminical discourse, yes. um, and and also if you love poetry uh, and literature, which is really my first love, um, the study of literature. Um, I mean are you furthering elitist discourse by studying poetry is, you know, then then you'd say that, you know, studying Latin poetry would further some kind of Latin discourse. I mean, I study poetry because I love poetry. I love mm-hmm. literature. So Sanskrit is a broad umbrella. Lots of things can be covered in it. Yeah. With the second part, which is regional languages, so my first love is really not Sanskrit it's Bengali which is my mother tongue Mm -hmm. and in a way um, my whole journey into Sanskrit was through Bengali it was by reading uh, a a very important um, Bengali writer called Bunkim Chandra who writes a very rich Sanskritic Bengali prose it was that that was my first window into the richness of the Sanskrit language. It was uh Bonkim's use of these beautiful long compounds which are padded with description that was so Sanskritic that excited my interest in uh Sanskrit prose, which was where Bonkim was drawing his. Um, his style from, so my journey into Sanskrit was through Bengali, and in I I hope that in doing Sanskrit at some point in my life I will come back to my mother tongue Bengali, mm. because one day um, I hope I'm able to write beautiful pieces of Bengali literature.
1: Mm. That's beautiful. I, I I see that happening for you definitely. <laughs> so. Um, so I guess my my next question with regards to this, and and I hear, um, what you're saying in terms of what the, and maybe maybe I'm just ignorant of the re, of the kind of, libraries specific to you know the possible libraries possible texts that are within these different regional languages, um, but is is it also the case that we have a proportionally larger um, uh, library of literature or possibilities, you know, to be translated in in the textual tradition of Sanskrit, than in these other other regional languages, such that there is an argument that we, you know, that 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 the, that the emphasis on Sanskrit over these regional languages makes some sort of proportional sense. Does that make sense as a question?
2: Yeah, I I, I think it does make sense as a question, but um,
1: you're not sure that's true.
2: Well, <laughs> so I. I mean I don't think that one should study a language because or one should study expressions in a language or the literature or the the um the religious texts of a particular language because over and above another uh language because there is more unstudied right. texts in this and less less in that I I don't think that's um that's a very utilitarian argument right. for studying a subject. I think you should study a language and a literature and a culture because it fires your imagination because yeah. you're curious. Yeah. It should be pure love. Um. I, And it should be pure interest, not anything else. There is a vast amount of. Uh, literature in the regional languages in uh, tamil in in bengali um and there will always be writing in that but that doesn't mean that we should not study sanskrit and just study those languages Mm -hmm. um those vernaculars i'm interested in bengali and sanskrit bengali is my mother tongue and i approach sanskrit through the mother tongue I think it's okay if I want to read in both and if I yeah. want to study in both.
1: If the passion is there.
2: If the passion is there. If yeah. the passion is there. Yes.
1: What do you, um, going back to the question about, you know, being able to go to the source text, why do you think that that's so particularly important? Um, because it seems like there is less and less of that, right? I mean, that's one of the things you notice when you get to the program that, that I studied with you in, and also just seeing the amount of students. There are very few students studying Sanskrit. There are very few people, you know, like proportionally to the rest of the academic community, really trying to get to a place where they actually can um, interact with these texts. So I guess the question is sort of one of how we even cultivate that passion to begin with, right? Because the passion for languages you could say socially had a, a height, right there, oh, because yeah. it was emphasized, it was, it was prioritized in sort of in sort of the academic culture to learn other yeah. languages. And yeah, you could make an argument that that was for some sort of imperialist agenda, colonialist agenda. But there was also just, you know, in the background of that, a, a, a serious curiosity, a passion like the one you're describing that you have for Bengali and for Sanskrit. Um, but in a in a in a state of our culture where we actually don't, you know, less and less people have any passion whatsoever because they've never been introduced to something that would actually ignite that passion. How do you pedagogically as a teacher inspire that in your students?
2: Yeah, so I think one of the ways I do it, and I'm trying to do it now, is use the political argument. Okay. In that Right now, Sanskrit is being seen as um, an RSS, a a right-wing Hindu fundamentalist thing. Um, You know, this is the right time. Actually, this is the time when someone who's not right-wing, someone who's not, well, who doesn't have that kind of political agenda should be studying Sanskrit to show that you can study Sanskrit unmotivated by any kind of political ideology. This is the time to do it and ask difficult questions that that comes from reading, from studying the language that should be asked. Um, I mean, so, so yes, yeah, so there is that argument that this is the time really to study Sanskrit in the context of this rising... Um, intolerant attitude in, in India, this is the time to be studying Sanskrit in a way that isn't constrained by that intolerant attitude, in a way that's free. So it's important to be able to do, let's say, subversive Sanskrit studies. a <laughs> yeah. Sanskrit studies that does not tour um, uh, a right-wing politically Uh, a politically right-wing constrained um, uh, uh, mode. It should be a kind of study now that is um, well that is courageous to ask questions that come up in a free mind Um, and that's what I tell students and this is what gets them excited. Uh, So yeah, I don't know if I answered that. No, maybe. you did, and
1: I think I just found the title of this podcast Subversive Sanskrit Studies with Bahani. <laughs> um it, I love that. And I I'm going to it brings up a question for me um that's going to go to another one of our kind of um political <laughs> slightly political or social we questions. We should
2: create this thing mm-hmm. here actually, Jacob. We should create subversive uh, Let's subvers- do it. a workshop for sub subsur- uh, subversive Sanskrit studies. Yes. Right
1: here. If you're interested, listeners, um, email jacob at embodiedphilosophy.com. Tell him you want to be a part of this subversive Sanskrit studies workshop. We'll see if there's some interest in that. Um, so, okay. One of the other criticisms of Sanskrit, and I love talking about this with others, with with people who study Sanskrit, and obviously I do, um, but um, there's a, there is a sense in which the the field is dominated by white men, straight white men. Uh, So, I mean, I have one, uh, I have one marginalized (laughs) ticking box, uh, but I'm still a white man in this field. So um, whether or not that makes me a part of the problem or not, who knows, but how does it, so I have two questions regarding this. Like, first of all, how has it been for you as a South Asian woman to be in a, in, you know, in a field dominated by white men? Has it been something that you've actively reflected upon that you felt alienated by or affected by in some way um and and in the and then in the name of this subversive sanskrit studies does a part of that also involve bringing other marginalized voices into this field
2: yeah thank you um that is a brilliant question and i think i have been thinking about this for consciously and unconsciously for the entirety of my Sanskrit journey, the first thing to say about this field is that it's very male dominated. Yeah. First, Um, there are few women in the field. And it's not just in Western academia, traditionally, Sanskrit is, is uh, a subject. I mean, the study of Sanskrit has been the privilege of men. Yeah. Um, although, of course, there are uh, there are some women who's who studied uh, studied Sanskrit and who uh, wrote Sanskrit texts, and you have examples of women philosophers in uh, Upanishadic uh, writings. You have um, citations of women poets in um, compendia of uh, Sanskrit poetry. But these are few. Um, On the whole, the study of Sanskrit has historically been uh, the privilege of men. So going into Sanskrit, I was very conscious uh, of the fact that um, I'm a woman stepping into a field of men. Mm -hmm. Uh, White men and brown men, men in general. Um, And I was very conscious uh, that the reason I was doing so was because throughout my life, the arbiters of uh, authority, uh, the arbiters of cultural authority, um, while I was growing up were all men. Um, I didn't have the freedom to interpret tradition without it being interpreted to me and for me by a man or by a woman who echoed Uh, a man's um, a man's uh, viewpoint so when I was going into study Sanskrit I was very conscious of the fact that I was interpreting this literature and thought world that was largely produced by men as a woman and I'm taking I'm making this radical choice it was a choice of that empowered me because I didn't want to be dependent on those male voices of authority. So that was one aspect. As I went further in the field, I began to notice that, yes, it was not just male dominated, but it was also dominated by white men. And I think there is a particular way that white men view uh, non-white women, Mm. especially non-white women from the East. There is a general stereotype and it's not just in Sanskrit studies, I think it might be in academia, might be more widely outside academia as well. There's a general stereotype that women from the East are docile, are polite, are quiet, are submissive. Um, And because of those characteristics, they are overlooked. I felt overlooked and marginalized as a South Asian woman, in a field dominated by white male academics for a very long time. And um, so that forms a kind of, I guess, an anger (laughs) uh, that I'm gradually coming to terms with and I'm fighting back against against that um, viewpoint um, intellectually these days as well, because I'm working on a book on um on women in sanskrit poetry and mm. largely conceptions of wild women and female transgression uh in this uh, body of traditional literature um that actually um that actually argues that instead of seeing a lot of these women in the way that they have and they are by the white male sanskritist which is that they are um, passive, unimportant, pretty, meek, uh, non-entities. But they're actually powerful, passionate, um, active, uh, defiant women. And it is possible to read these women uh, against that, that particular hegemonic white male academic view. And an example I use to fight back against that view is the example of Parvati in the Kumara Sambhava.
0: Hmm.
2: (laughs) Stop with that.
1: I love that. I can't wait to read that book. Well, I mean, I'm curious then does, um, because when you're talking about images of, of powerful women, of course, the first thing that sort of emerges for me is are images that one finds iconographic images one finds in the Shakta tradition. Um, And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of what we're talking about sort of comes back at least in terms of the religious study to Shaktism, which has been a big formative field of study for you and seems to motivate a lot of what you do because, um, not only was your heroic Shaktism, your first book, um, on obviously that very topic. Um, but also interestingly, for me, because I, I took it up as well was, uh, you started the Shaktism track at, at Oxford in the, in the classic, the Emphil and classical Indian religion, which was the program, um, that I, that I did that, that I studied with you in. And, um, although it's sort of after you left, because, for those that are listening so the story went she got a job at lancaster and then um left us after the first year we didn't uh <laughs> we didn't judge you for it it was a totally valid you, decision so but we missed come you back
2: to me come to me in lancaster come back to me come join me
1: <laughs> i would love to you um form
2: a subversive sanskrit group
1: yes exactly um so yeah i'm just i'm just curious how um I, I suppose I want I'm trying to segue us into a little bit of of that um, that passion and that um, pursuit of of the study of shaktism. and 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 I'm curious why because we with with what is what is um, important about studying shaktism independently of Shaivism, right? Because a lot of times I think shaktism gets sort of absorbed into a study of shaivism because it's considered this sort of esoteric, Evolution or escalation of Shaiva um, of Shaiva philosophy or soteriology, um, but you really have you know are are among you know many obviously academics and practitioners who really highlight and allow to stand as independent from that the Shakta tradition. So can you talk a little bit about that? I, it's sort of a broad ranging question. Um, but it seems like the perfect time to talk about it since we're sort of discussing marginalized voices and and shaktism seems like it's been a marginalized tradition until relatively recently
2: yes so within the subcontinent um there has always been independent veneration of a goddess or many goddesses identified as a single supreme goddess areas of the subcontinent such as um, bengal um, nepal south india um, rajasthan are home to vibrant traditions of shakta or goddess uh, worship in which it's the goddess in her singularity who is worshipped so the entire idea that shakta traditions are somehow only uh, adjuncts to Shaivism or Vaishnavism, does not tally with the lived reality of worship
0: mm-hmm. in
2: the subcontinent presently, um, as well as historically, as uh, as well as historically, um, if you look at shakta inscriptions, they're more than 240 inscriptions uh, evincing uh, uh, devotion to a goddess and a goddess who is um, exalted as a supreme all-powerful deity going back to the second century AD. Mm. So um, I think that we Although it has although Indians have known it um, for a very long time it seems somehow within academia and within the western Western academic discourse it seems that it's important to show that shaktism was a standalone tradition um, because so much of the study, uh, of of philosophical and uh, conceptual sources has been from the Shaiva and the Vaishnava um, areas. So um, that's my answer, that I think um, Shaktism as an independent tradition has always been um, recognized uh, by South Asians uh, within South Asia, um, and also inscriptions um, can, can show it. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that Shaktism became ever more popular was that uh, goddess worship was incorporated into these other patriarchal traditions uh, within Shaivism, within Vaishnavism, Even within Jaina traditions, and of course the Buddhist Tantric traditions, there are strong Shakta, that is to say, goddess worshipping traditions that were incorporated. Um, So Shaktism is not alone, not only a standalone tradition, but it also permeates and pervades other other, uh, classical traditions as well. Mm. So, um, what was the second question, Jacob? Sorry.
1: I don't even remember, <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. I have more.
2: Um, I said something about shaktism um, and feminism, was it? Or Yeah. I
1: mean, I think, I guess, I guess the, the, yeah, the, the question was related to this idea of how the, um, I don't know, not even resuscitation because right, like you're saying, it's always already been a part of the lived experiences of people you know mm. worshiping within these traditions in both both contemporarily and 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 anciently um over centuries and it's only within the academic study that it's been sort of subsumed within these other um within these other agendas uh, research agendas so it seems that there is a kind of feminist argument to be made over focusing obviously on the elevation of the shakta traditions and there's a a feminist reasoning behind why the Shakta Shakta traditions may have been not highlighted as the important traditions um, or as central to, you know, the religious life of India?
2: Absolutely. Um, I do think there's a feminist argument to be made in um, studying these traditions in their own right, rather than being as, you know, quote unquote, the sexier versions of Shaivism and Vaishnavism. Um, And There is a further point about feminism that I actually wanted to make. Um, And this is is from my perspective as um, an Indian woman, that for South Asian women, shock the traditions, the concepts and the tales about the goddess and practices about the goddess have been our homegrown Uh, native uh, feminist traditions for centuries Uh, within these shark the tales we have models of female autonomy Mm. that Indian girls have found inspiring for centuries so um, it's a kind of homegrown feminist tradition um, which kind of which, in you know, which which form templates of um, inspiring, uh, uh, emancipating um, Indian women. So mm-hmm. that's something that I've been kind of thinking about lately as well. That Shaktism could even be thought of, or the way I experienced it, really, is that it was um, the local feminist tradition
1: hmm that's a really unique way to think about it i really love that actually like the idea of of the shakta traditions as a homegrown feminist tradition i feel like that's a rich area of research that hasn't really been explored so much it seems or that i've seen
2: i think it's important to think about it this way because um Lately, of course, global feminisms uh, are be- you know are becoming very very important uh, within feminist scholarship. Uh, writers uh, from Islamic feminism, from Black feminism, are really contributing with perspectives that challenge um, assumptions within uh, Western white uh, feminism, and I think. I mean, I certainly find the writings of Islamic feminists very, very inspiring. Uh, writings of, say, uh, Sabah Mahmood and Laila abu Lughod, who argue that actually forms of piety, forms of women expressing and relishing their religious life were, in fact, um, forms of... Um, self-expression and empowerment uh, in many contexts. And I think that these kinds of alternative perspectives uh, in feminism that bring in the viewpoint of non-Western cultures is really helpful now um, for us to consider Shaktism as, as a kind of feminist, uh, as a kind of, kind of, kind of feminist in its ideology, that here you have, um, here you have a central, um, a notion of autonomous female and an auto, an, um, an image of autonomous female, of an autonomous femaleness, that is both maternal and at the same time that is violent. Um, So it's a really rich conception of female subjectivity that we find articulated here. Mm. And when I have that in mind and I read tales and legends of the goddess, I actually see narratives about women's experiences lurking in the background for example in legends about um, the goddess Kali uh, leaping out from Parvati's rejected black skin the skin that she sloughed off her body because she wanted to be fair and white I find in it a reflection of um, unwanted, basically a tale about unwanted daughters, that the unwanted daughter is rejected from uh, the mother's womb. And Mm. this unwanted daughter, who is Kali, grows up or becomes this ferocious and angry goddess. So if you look deeply within shock the narratives you will find feminist tales or tales about women's experiences um yeah i'm going to leave Yeah a-
1: almost like, like they're codified in some in these in these mythologies and and these stories and yeah. and i really like what you're pointing out about um the the way in which they challenge the you know obviously the the notion of the maternal has a particular set of features, and in violence certainly isn't included within it. So you know it it it, it challenges these but this binary thinking about what these concepts mean that are part and parcel of like you said kind of a a white Western approach to um, feminism, wherein something like the maternal might be otherwise you know characterized differently so it ha- it offers a different picture of these things in a way that that is really fruitful so that's really interesting
2: yeah i mean this is something this is actually thinking about tales of women or tales of goddesses as narratives of women's experience and narratives of that that tell us about female subjectivity um is something that I am occupied with a lot these days. And I'm beginning to see that these tales express so much more. Um, sisterhood, for example. I mean, um, I was, you know, looking at uh, the description of Parvati's asceticism in chapter five of the great epic poem, the Kumara Sambhava. And in that description, Parvati is not alone. She's with her friends. And her friends accompany her on this journey of self-transformation. Um, the and, and in this this narrative, Parvati is using uh, piety to express herself and to transform herself, to, to make herself independent of family uh to to make herself into um a new uh and strong woman so and in that journey her friends are an important part um play an important part they're not hidden they're there and a lot of people have asked me when I'm reading this text why isn't she alone and I'm like no I mean you know she's she can't be alone she's with her sisters with her friends they are multiple voices all of these are voices of women and Parvati somehow stands for uh women in collectivity Mm. um so this this idea of a collective female self um a self that is in numbers um a self that is formed of different female experiences, which all echo. I feel that that emerges from a lot of this literature as well.
1: Mm. That's so interesting. So I'm going to ask you. Then um, I wanted to ask you a question about the style of historic uh, historic Shaktism, or rather, the kind of methodological approach, which you know, as you've already mentioned. Um, you talked at the beginning about the relationship between um religion and kingship, religion and and kind of the state apparatus for lack of a better term, um, which is a really important dimension of understanding. I think that when you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are practitioners of various sorts, they're yoga practitioners, they're meditators, and insofar as they're interested in Indian philosophy or Indian religions, they're interested from in some sense, a devotional standpoint. So in that world, there's a lot of people who have a lack of historical view, right? And, and sometimes, and there's a lot of, I think, criticism of this dehistoricization that happens, um, you know, within certain contemporary spiritual communities whereby, whereby if they had actually engaged out of historical in a historical way there would be different insights and and one could kind of tease out a little bit of some of the historical reasons for why some of these things emerged so that's one dimension of thinking right the historical view but there's also this and i think actually you we discussed this when you were teaching at oxford um, but because the book is so historical um, and in some ways it feels a little bit like, um, you know, Sheldon Pollock is also a very historical thinker and really, you know, very much focuses on kind of the relationship to, between these, these forms of um, these different Royal patronages and, and connections with different um, state actors or um, governmental actors or Imperial actors. But um, then there is this competing view that suggests that if we over historicize, then we actually disempower the lived because these religious traditions are always both contextual and also reaching beyond the contextual in their own self-understanding, right? They're reaching beyond towards a state of transcendent fulfillment um, that, you know, takes on a particular historical tone tonality in different contexts, but is sort of reaching towards something that it, Believes is perennial, right? That it, it is it is uh, is reaching towards a, some kind of religious experience that then takes on these different characteristics depending on the different context. So, um, and so there is, I think, a com- a critical response to the historical mode, which I know you don't share this view um, purely and completely, but it's just something that I think comes up when you're for somebody that might be reading this text. It's sort of like, well, how? when I'm, when I'm over, when I'm historicizing something in a particular way, I end, I end up feeling like it's no longer mine. Right. In a sense, mm-hmm. because it becomes, um, something that has been taken out of sort of the lived, um, voice of perennial spiritual experience and sort of in a, and almost a sense, I think Nietzsche made this point of like, of the way in which historicization can actually deaden the life of a, of a kind of spiritual trajectory, or, I mean, he wouldn't have put it that way, but um, that's the way I'm putting it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I've just went kind of on a tangent with all of these things, no, but
2: I, I get you. There is yeah. this extreme secular secularized yeah. of um, aspects of South Asian culture in which, Uh, Like, for example, Kavya Sanskrit poetry is sometimes by some scholars um, read as something purely secular, but it's also the expression of uh, religious piety. There are passionate uh, devotional hymns which are written in um, ornate Sanskrit, so-called secular Sanskrit. So you... I think this division into secular and religious is uh, the result of a rather kind of Western liberal attitude that sees religion, politics, literature, all as separate little boxes and yeah. divided up. Whereas in some parts of the world, it wasn't. They, they really bounded together. For example, uh, political rituals... Uh, the Ashwamedha, the Rajasuya, the Navaratra, they were worship, acts of worship in which there was a genuine connection between the self and the transcendent. But there were also aspects that empowered the ruler, empowered the entire state So these two dimensions, the political and the sacred, the the mundane and the sacred, overlapped. Mm -hmm. So you can't divide the two up really in considering some certain aspects of of heritage. So that's my take on um, reading uh, traditions historically is that you've got to be mindful and conscious of their real genuine importance to practitioners as uh, practices of faith um, while at the same time being aware of the various factors over time that have uh, changed the, the the form of worship. So you've got to be both um <laughs> you've got to be aware of both aspects. You've got to take take into account the fact that these rituals are in, are deeply important for some even today. And at the same time, you've got to take into account that these rituals also, like any other thing, uh, any other part of culture has a history and a background. Yeah. I should also say that um, I am... Uh, someone from South Asia, I am from a traditional Hindu household. I am from, uh, I've grown up seeing and witnessing these uh, traditions firsthand and in a very authentic way. I therefore feel that given that I'm an insider through and through, I have the right to study these traditions historically as well, which have Mm. been studied historically by others who were not part of the tradition. Yeah. So for centuries, they have been, rituals have been studied as curiosities, historical curiosities, by mainly non-Western academic scholars, or they are appropriated as practice by, sorry, by Western academic scholars, or they're appropriated by uh, as practice by um, Westerners who are not part of the tradition. And as someone who um, comes from uh, a family that, that that's a freedom fi- a, fi- a family of freedom fighters who fought against colonial oppression, I see it as as a way of taking back control of uh, the narrative of my uh, identity. So. I feel that I do have a right to be historical about these things, Um, and I feel that I know about these things, and I feel that I can be historical about these things because I know about these things as an insider.
1: Yeah. So you're bringing up a really interesting point, and I I didn't even know that we would go here, but I'm glad that we are, Um, because what I'm what I hear you saying is, you know, sometimes the sort of the emic understanding or the insider view is often in within religious studies um, defined as someone who is internal to the tradition, not necessarily by means of culture, but by means of practice and engagement, you know, one who, one who sort of um, imbibes and, and feels internal to the worldview and the philosophy of that tradition and has adopted sort of the, the so the let's say the epistemologies that one does whether it's ritual or meditation or some form of of practice or ritual to actually i don't know embody that tradition and so what i what i hear you maybe suggesting and i kind of want to hear what you think about this is that um and this is another thing that's been criticized of course by some academics um that or you know just people uh, those who are in that 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 this is uh, that to be an insider of the tradition one must be of the culture like that that and that because you were from india you're from bengali and you were internal to these traditions like when i hear you say you're an insider that seems defined by this cultural specificity this cultural location right and culture and the kind of um, um immersion that you were and in the way in which you embody but my means of being raised in it. So I guess my question is: do you think that it's not possible? Uh, uh, you know, like Christianity, other religions, you people convert to these traditions. Hmm. How do you see Hinduism with regards to that? Can someone become an insider by means of their own adoption of these worldview and practices? Or does one have to be? um a person raised within these traditions in order to be an insider
2: oh my god that is such a difficult question and it's <laughs> such a minefield because while you say that i'm very much aware that part of the thing part of the arguments that hindu nationalists use is that you know um knowers of the tradition are simply born into the tradition so you've got yeah. that kind of that kind of view. But on the other hand, I'm also thinking of, say, uh, African philosophers like Ngugi wa Thiongo, who 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 really does make this argument in decolonizing the mind and in a very radical way that um, it's only uh, someone who is who is uh, born black African who has the right and the power to uh, express. Um, A viewpoint about their traditions because they know the traditions the best. And that argument is made as a kind of reclamation of lost identity. So you've got two things going on here on either side. And I don't know what the right answer is. Um, I think a, a strong part of me, which is I mean, a a large part of me, which is powerfully influenced by um, uh, Black decolonization, uh, philosophies by Black uh, decolonialist thinkers, does think that you need to be from inside the tradition to really understand it.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: You need to be from the culture to really understand it. But another part of me also is critical, self-critical, and says that no, actually, you're thinking like an RSS, uh, a Hindu nationalist person, to say that if you can only understand a culture best if you're born into it. So I'm actually not quite sure. I think for the time being, because we are in a moment in history where post colonial societies such as India are still finding their identity and still reclaiming that mm-hmm. lost identity, which has been, which has. Which has basically been taken away, and there's trauma that we have to, to go through, generational trauma. Yeah. That um, part of me says that at this point in mo- of time, I need to make a commitment to the political stance that one needs to be from within the culture to understand it well so that one can evaluate it, reevaluate it, and thereby come up with a new post colonial. Uh, a post-colonial identity, uh, South Asian identity, um, but at the same time, I'm not a Hindu fundamentalist.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I really appreciate you know, the honesty told, about this because I, I I think told,
2: um, Islamic kingship today, and you know the the joys and wonders of the 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 aesthetic marvels of South Asian Islam was the topic of the day today in the classroom. So. So yeah, I'm not quite sure where I stand on that, Jacob. I think it's a really difficult question, and we can go on and on talking about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate your your honesty about it. And I think I think it just is one of those those questions that, to be honest with yourself, if you're a careful thinker, you end up in a little bit of a paradox because yeah, because it you know on the one hand, I mean, I you know I it's I'm honest about the fact that I I practice within a meditative tradition that derives from Shakta Shaiva Tantra. And I, and cool. I, and I feel, I feel um, connected and that I would say that I'm an insider to that tradition insofar as I am um, engaged with, like I, I am, I am an insider to the worldview in which those, the, the soteriological technologies make sense. Right. I am, you know, and but at the same time, I did not was not raised in India. I do not come, you know, from a background where I was Im- immersed in that,
0: mm. and and I fully
1: acknowledge that there is an argument to the fact that by privileging too many um, voices within the conversation who ne- were not raised in India, and then having that take on like this is what shaivism is or this is what shaktism is and those people did not have the experience of, of being raised within the cultural framework of 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 india that that it's a di- it will it will be um kind of painting a picture of that tradition that is of a different flavor um and that, so we I think
2: that's the key thing that you mentioned that it's a different flavor as long as it's like you know it's like the kind of Shakshuka that I make at home. I've got it out from some recipe book. It, it's not really the traditional, wonderful, glorious shakshuka that I, that someone from a deep uh, Turkish household will cook for me. I'm aware of it. I'm aware yeah. of it. As long as I think one is aware that there is, there are roots and origins that's where history is important because it tells you about the roots and origins of that particular cultural practice, that we are aware of that journey. And um, it's like, sometimes, you know, when you forget the roots, you forget the kind of the trauma that was, sometimes there are histories of colonialism and slavery and things like that. And all these practices that have, gone from one culture to another that people forget. I think the key thing here is to be aware of the story and history of that tradition, where it yeah. comes from. It's very important to know where it comes from um, yeah. because the danger is that when the, the this when memory of where it comes from is lost, that's when you take away the voice of the original tradition yeah and the power of the uh, original tradition that's where you're appropriating that's yeah. where there that's what we call cultural appropriation where yeah. you don't recognize you don't value the the place where that tradition started and yeah. the reasons why it started um and the people amongst whom it started yeah. so knowledge. It comes down to knowledge and awareness, being mindful and respectful and valuing the place where something comes from. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's my answer. Yeah, no, that's really well said. Um, So uh, speaking of kind of the the formative experiences that are sort of part and parcel of how you um relate to Sanskrit and also to the traditions of um, shaktism that you feel internal to one of the things that I just loved about you from the beginning um was your ch- chanting your singing during your book release, which I thought speaking of radical you know subversive Sanskrit practices I'm like, you know this is not subversive right this is this is quite a traditional way of, engaging with sanskrit as you know anybody who knows any even a little bit about sanskrit knows that there is an incredible vibratory tradition of tradition of of oral recitation and um and and when i i one of the things that i'm kind of very passionate about is the the notion of and the position of the scholar practitioner and and that um in my, my approach to it has to do more of the kind of embodied epistemologies that I feel are yeah, particular yeah. to, to studying something like any yoga tradition, right? You're not going to be able to understand the, the, the sort of concepts of yogic experience if you are not engaging with the epistemology the embodied epistemologies. Mm. So like, to me, it's almost, um, that's another way I feel like this cultural appropriation argument can go that I feel particularly passionate about is that you know, that what is happening, you know, particularly in academia, but also to a certain extent, you know, there's, they take on different, they do, it happens in different ways in the modern yoga community and then academia. In academia, they are, they're engaged from this quote unquote objective standpoint and the sort of embodied um, practices or rituals that would help one to kind of conceptualize in a, in a, non-discursive way, the teachings or the concepts of those traditions, um, they're not engaged with, you know, they don't, you know, academics aren't meditating generally. They're not chanting, right. They're not doing these things that are sort of perhaps one way we can understand a dimension of understanding these traditions.
2: Of course.
1: And then in the (laughs) yoga tradition, they are, you know, I mean, from a popular standpoint, they are anesthetizing, the yoga practice from its soteriological component, right? Mm -hmm. They are, they are kind of extracting the Hatha yoga, right? The physical practices from the spiritual context from which they derive and therefore not actually giving the yoga an opportunity to do what it's designed to do, which is to help you experience some sort of, you know, various forms of transcendent states, depending on which tradition you're looking at. So then coming back to your approach i sort of saw you as being a a kind of kindred spirit in this way i'm because the fact that you chose to you know um to to go a little further in what would have in an academic environment where people are not most of those academics in that room are not going to go and release their book and chant or sing and i loved that you did that um because it just showed a a kind of sensitivity and a vulnerability, um, and creativity at your core as an academic. Um, but also, um, your, you know, a a subversive way, uh, that actually is quite traditional of presenting Sanskrit to an academic audience while also staying connected to the practice of the recitation of Sanskrit. So that's a lot of, talking. Uh, So yeah, I'm just curious what you think about that and how you see your relationship with Sanskrit from a musical, I don't know if you see it as devotional um, perspective, how you see that playing into all the things that we've been talking about in terms of um, your relationship with Sanskrit as an academic and as a, as a thinker.
2: Well, before I give um, my answer. I should mention to your audience that I don't know if your audience knows that uh, Jacob, you are uh, a trained um, dancer and a and and singer as well. Was it was. More- uh,
1: I I wouldn't call myself a trained dancer, <laughs> but I I mean I was I was originally in musical theater, so I had to do all yeah. of that, and um and singing was kind of my first love. So that's also yes, you're right. Um the back the, the context of this is also that. Hearing you sing also, of course, captures my own. Uh, and I think maybe that was also what appealed to me as I was like, ah, someone who can combine the inter- the passions to sing and to focus on, on this path of study um, and integrate it in such a beautiful way. And yeah, that was also what appealed to me as well was kind of that, that um, those two things being brought together
2: so you understand the joy of art um the joy of performance um the joy and nerves of performance (laughs) just just the that that energy that happens when you're performing that moment where you feel you're lifted out of this space and there's something magical that's happening right now almost like witchcraft i think you understand that and You're speaking to someone who is a frustrated singer. I trained in Indian classical music for a very, very long time. In fact, my first memory is of my mother singing. She has a beautiful voice and she was trained in the songs of Tagore. Uh, I am from a Bengali household and it's almost de for any Bengali um, child to be trained in the songs of Tagore. Uh, my mum not just trained in, in it, she loves singing it and she's a beautiful voice. So my first memory is lying on her lap, looking up at her face and her singing accompanied by the Tanpura. And from that time on, music has been very close to my heart. Um, it runs in the family I've grown up surrounded by uh people who love music, um, family, friends who are musicians, music was the topic of the day. So I think deep down, I am first a singer and then an academic. I think I'm an accidental academic.
1: Oh my God, that resonates with me so much.
2: Oh, I mean, so much of the, the natural power of music, which which is instinctive it it I, I just feel i feel like sanskrit i learned it and i had to struggle with it but i was just born with music mm-hmm. it was a gift and if one one's talking about um transcendence well that's i'm blessed that in my otherwise mundane life that's a touch of transcendence mm. and i'm grateful for it that there is that that music is the touch of transcendence in my life, and mm. in a way, singing um, Sanskrit poetry in um, in Indian ragas is a way to reconnect with that transcendence. Really, I don't think of it as doing something traditional. In fact, I'm probably not chanting it according to the traditional way. I, I, I compose. Um, Uh, melodies to particular ragas that also keeps up my practice and knowledge of the ragas and I take particular pieces of Sanskrit poetry that I feel will just be totally different if it was experienced as music Um, Mm. and and I set it to, to music and I sing it and hopefully that's gives a different a better experience of of the of the poem um so yeah i it's a way for me to keep in touch with a powerful um spiritual dimension in me that i cannot explain um yeah. that i was blessed with um and i'm grateful that i was blessed with it and uh, when Whenever I die, I want to die with a song on my lips.
1: Mm. <laughs> That's so beautiful. What an incredible note to end on as well. Just, I'm so glad we ended up here. Um, I, I Really, I'm, I'm so glad I asked you that because I, I really do feel, I mean, I'm in, actually in this place of, a lot of shifts have happened recently for me. And one of, I started studying with a a voice teacher again, and I was, I was kind of kicked out of a musical theater program, which is a, a early adult trauma that is basically set me on the path that I'm on now. And I feel like I'm also an accidental academic, or I'm on that path of becoming an accidental academic. Um, and it's, I'm always, there's always kind of music, um, in, in the background that that pulls me toward it. And and I feel like there is this sort of um you know journey in which I'm trying to integrate these two aspects of myself. Mm. Um, and I love that you mention music as a, a reaching towards a transcendent or as a as a spiritual practice because I I I really feel that you know just making a kind of perhaps polemical or philosophical point that music is is already spiritual and the only reason that we experience it as mundane is because we've forgotten right it's sort of this pratyabhijna. like uh, if we could just recognize that it is already a spiritual practice then Mm. you know it's Mm. only in our culture that we have kind of put it in this category of entertainment Mm. yeah so i'm really glad that you mentioned that because you know it's I think music is an easy way into the spiritual for so many because it's sort of that last that last kind of universal thing that we all share. I mean it's hard it's to find art. people that don't like musical music.
2: Yeah, it's art, it's creativity, it's um it's shakti, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been such a lovely conversation, Bahani. And, Thank um, you, Jacob.
2: Thank I'm so you. glad
1: that we went on for a little more than I, longer than I usually do, but it felt oh, really lovely.
2: I hope your viewers you. were not bored.
1: <laughs> What's that?
2: I hope your viewers were not bored.
1: Oh, no, no. We went into so many interesting areas, and I didn't even touch on classical Sanskrit tragedy, but um, maybe next time. Uh, you'll have to come to, when you're in in London next time let me know and we should I have, will. we should have a coffee um and and catch up i would love to to see you in person after so long and
2: you've got to tell me about your voice coach
1: i will do yes um so is there anything you know just again i've been speaking to bahani sarkar and she is the author of two books right just two yeah. heroic shaktism i have both of them here heroic shaktism the cult of durga in ancient Indian Kingship. Um, which is just as it sounds, a a investigation of the cult of Durga in ancient Indian kingship, uh, a very interesting historical um, perspective. And I definitely recommend it if you are um, a student or um, an interested um, reader of Shaktism. And then the second book, which I was at the book release party for, and I'm very happy to say what we were speaking of Bahani, when Bahani was singing at the book release, it was for the book, Classical Sanskrit Tragedy, The Concept of Suffering and Pathos in Medieval India. Um, and this was actually the first one I read really super interesting because I love the the kind of cross-cultural emphasis of it, the the discussion of kind of, um, I mean, obviously you were focused on Sanskrit, but the the concept of tragedy being sort of monopolized in some sense by the western tradition thinking that it has some sort of exclusive uh, right over that term and and the from what i understand the point of the book really was to in illustrate the way in which we find um tragedy represented in sanskrit uh literature um so those two books get them at your local bookstore or on amazon i believe you can find them there And is there anything else that you're working on, Bahani, in terms of book projects you want to share so that uh, when people listen to this, if it's in the future, they can look for that as well?
2: Well, I'm working on a book called Wild Women and Goddesses in uh, ancient Sanskrit poetry and mythology. So there'll be a a lot of wild women (laughs) there.
1: I'm sure there's lots of people who will relate to that. So check out.
2: (laughs) I hope
1: so. I'll be I'll be getting with that book myself. Um so yeah, look for wild women. If it's if it's in November of 2023 when this is being interviewed, um when is when do you have a, a date around when it might be coming out? Uh
2: 2025.
1: Okay, so, so it's a little ways it. away.
2: I'm still All working right. on it.
1: <laughs> still working on it. All right. Um well if you're listening to this in 2025, look for wild women by Bahani Sarkar. And um otherwise, um, it's been fantastic and I hope to see you very soon.
2: It's been such a pleasure and I'm sending you a big warm hug from my end and hope you flourish and sing.